Hello, and thank you for tuning in today to Issues of Interest from Baker Newman Noise, where we cover assurance, tax, business advisory, and technology topics and trends affecting the banking and financial services industry. I'm Joe Jalbert, and I lead the banking and financial services practice here at BNN. Banks and financial institutions are constantly navigating volatility and change. Here at Issues of Interest, we help you stay current on what's happening in the industry so you can achieve success for your institution. Now, let's get into the episode. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Issues of Interest, BNN's podcast for the banking and financial services industry. I'm Jordan Milano. I'm an Assurance Senior Manager at Baker Newman Noyes, and I'm here today with Mark Haberland, a Managing Director at Darling Consulting Group, also known as DCG. They're uh, an asset and liability management consulting firm who specialize in serving banks and credit unions. Hi, Mark. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Jordan. Nice to be here. Today, we're here just to talk about CECL and specifically what both Mark and I have seen since our clients have began the implementation of CECL and the model validation process. Mark, if you want to start off just talking about some of the leading practices and some of your observations so far, I'll have you get started. Sure. I mean, CECL, most everybody I think has has adopted at this point, most of them this year. So it's still relatively new to a lot. And that is both good and also does provide some challenges. I think when we're looking at from a validation perspective and also from an implementation perspective for banks and credit unions of different sizes and complexity. We also just don't have a lot of regulatory feedback at this point in time yet. I mean, a lot of institutions have been, have been going through exams or audits. And at this point, I think a lot of the goal is just meeting the standard and checking the box at this point. We're not looking for an A plus in Cecil. We're looking for a, a pass you know, on the pass-fail scale, which I think so far, I, I think most have, have been able to accomplish. But I, I had the benefit to talk with with some members of our, our CECL team that, that have been doing the validations. And the benefit is we've seen just about every every model that's out there, in-house, third-party models, you know, big, small, and in-between. And, you know, a lot of the feedback that, that we've seen relative to you know, some of the more, you know, the leading practices, I guess, one of the things that I heard from them in the validations comes down to one of them was a, on the reasonable and supportable forecast. It's surprisingly, it's just something that they've seen making sure that that's being included in the quantitative model rather than something that's just being factored in after the fact as part of the qualitative adjustments. And sometimes that that's, you know, that that's not been happening. So we want to make sure that in terms of the recovery for the reasonable and supportable period that that's being included from that perspective, just was one of the key points that we heard to start off with. That's a good observation. What about governance and board level oversight? From my perspective, those institutions that have a board who are really challenging management's assumptions, have their hands in CECL implementation process, they're asking the whys. It seems like their implementation has maybe gone a little more smoothly or they, they understand their model a bit better. Have you found mm-hmm. that as well? I would absolutely say so. I think the, I don't want to say take it more seriously, but I think the more involvement you have from the board loan committee level, when they're challenging the assumptions that come from management or from the CECL committee 
and don't just take, I don't say take the word for it, but they don't just take it at, you know, at their word. They ask the tough questions. They want to make sure that, you know, that this model is built as well as it can be, which is the goal. I mean, Cecil's new to everybody and nobody's coming into this, you know, having years of experience with, with Cecil. So you want to challenge and make sure that we're, we're putting the best assumptions into this. The models that you're using are going to give you a quantitative calculation, but I think everybody sort of knows where the reserve is going to fall. So you want to make sure we've got good data and good assumptions that go into this. And it, it starts at the top from, from the board and, and executive levels to make sure that they're challenging that. And it also starts from a model risk management perspective as a cultural change within the organization to make sure that that falls within documentation and analysis and model oversight that this model, and this is the first you know real model implementation across the industry that, that falls in with model risk management guidance taking real effect, particularly in the community banking space, to make sure that these models are working as intended and as well as they can be for these organizations. But they're going to continue to evolve. As people get more comfortable and familiar with CECL, we're going to see you know, changes in terms of methodologies and the qualitative adjustments and things are going to become a little bit more familiar to everybody. And the more people know, the easier these are going to get. So it will get better. That's true. I also think that having the right personnel, dedicated resources, figuring out who at your institution really should be owning this process is very important. And that may also evolve over time. But um, Cecil's a big deal and just throwing it at someone, you know, who may 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 or may not be the best person to be uh, running this model is important to really think about. It's just important to think about. Exactly. Sometimes you've got a dedicated, you know, Cecil resource, particularly if it's more of an in-house model. Sometimes this falls at the lap of the CFO who has so many other things on their plate right now that they're just like, get get this away from me and get this done as quickly and easily as possible, in which case the care and nurturing that, that it requires may, for no fault of their own, not get done. And I think for those that are able to dedicate particular resources to it, to your point, Jordan, are going to have a better implementation and ongoing process than those that are a little shorthanded when it comes to, to resources. Right. Something else we have seen is that those institutions that are conducting a sensitivity analysis and who really understand how changes to the inputs and assumptions affect the outcome, they have not only has the implementation process been a little bit smoother, but they also just have better documentation. They're able to really understand their model and analyze the results related to the potential range of outcomes because they understand the sensitivity of those inputs. Exactly. I think that's particularly the case when you look at the qualitative adjustments. If you go back to the incurred loss models before, uh, it was pretty straightforward. And I think the desire is to sort of carry those forward. A lot of those qualitative, the Q factors were now incorporated into the quantitative reserve calculations. So you're now you know, reliant on trying to figure out what adjustments still need to be made. But there's also, to your point, Jordan, you, you need to run a variety of different 
sensitivity analyses on those qualitative factors and the qualitative adjustments in different scenarios and see how they impact the calculation and the results. And there's no right or wrong answer to Cecil. There's shades of gray when it comes to that. So we need to make sure that we've got a comfort level with the results and can defend and support those assumptions. And we need to have a good understanding of where we fall within the spectrum of, of some of those adjustments and, and sensitivity analysis is the best way to be able to to arrive at an answer we feel comfortable with. Right. And I know that everybody's just been focused on getting the model in place and getting those day one adjustments, but the ongoing monitoring and the back testing and just looking at how these inputs have impacted your model and if if they make sense in hindsight, I think that's going to be the next big thing on everybody should be the next big thing on the to-do list is just to make sure that you have that ongoing monitoring and and back testing in place. Absolutely. This is not a, a set it and forget it type of an approach. This is going to be something that it's going to take some time to to get it set up, implemented. That initial validation is going to be important, but there's going to be ongoing review like you said, whether that's through audit or external validation you need to keep doing check-ins to make sure that any changes to the data, to the uh, you know the qualitatives, the assumptions, the methodologies, tweaks to the to the overall calculation aren't screwing up the calculation, so to speak. And you understand what's causing any changes and differences because it it, it is you know an important calculation that's going to have a lot of eyes on it. So making sure that this model is continuing to work like it should and giving you reliable results that you can defend and support will continue to be an important aspect of uh, of this going forward until it gets fine-tuned and really everybody's got a comfort level with uh, with Cecil, which is going to take a little while, but we'll get there. And I think on that note, when you're investing a lot in this model and you have vendors who are great vendors, but you still need to be cognizant of over-reliance on the vendor and make sure you're really understanding those inputs and especially those vendors that are offering consulting services, they may be offering the consulting services, but ultimately it's still up to management to understand why you've selected the model that you've selected, why you're using the inputs you're using. And then again, just asking, do the results make sense, regardless of whether or not your vendor says they do, you know? Exactly. And and that's been historically an important aspect when you look at third-party models or any kind of a, you know, speaking as a consultant, uh, any kind of a consultative relationship is it's still your model, even if it's outsourced. You have you have control of the assumptions. You have control of the data. You have it, it, it's yours. So when somebody comes and says, "Why did you do this?" Your answer can't be, "Well, they told me to do it," or it's their assumption. No, it's your assumptions. It's your model. It's it's yours, and you need to have confidence and and an understanding of of why your inputs are as they are. And I think with with a lot of the you know, vendor-provided models that, that we're seeing today, they're good models. And the consulting and advisory that comes with it is good advice and good consulting. But you need to be proactive. They're not knocking down the door saying, hey, do you need some questions answered? You need to ask the questions that you need answers to. And you need to understand what those answers mean. And it's important to know that some of the assumptions that go into it, the data that goes into it, have a profound impact on the results. And at the end of the day, you can't turn around and say, well, they told me to do it. And that, that's why it's wrong. It's still your model. And you have to have an understanding of it. So 
you can't hang your hat on the fact that it's uh it's black boxy you you have to you have to take ownership of it are there any other we'll call them lagging practices or notes that you think would be helpful as people are still working on enhancing their model and their documentation um again i i had some conversations with with some of the team and and they gave me a couple of uh a couple of good points you know particularly when we talk about some of the methodologies that are that are chosen and and a lot of it comes down to I mean, just the amount of history that you might have. And when it comes to methodology, it's important to understand it matters. I mean, it matters when you pick a methodology. Does it fit with your available data, your available history? And that's part of when we do a validation. And, you know, when you when you do an audit, Jordan, you're looking at it and say, does it make sense? Is it the right fit for the organization? So, you know, one example is if you pick, you know, a loss rate methodology – uh, for for Cecil, with a, a little bit more of a granular portfolio segmentation, and you're relying on you know, less than ten years of loss history just on the bank or credit union alone, and this is something that we've seen happen quite a bit. And what ends up happening, you know, under these types of conditions, is the loss rates end up being a little more unreliable, just due to the lack of loss that we've seen over a very short historical window. That ends up causing the quantitative reserve calculation to underestimate the overall potential loss. And what happens is management then ends up relying on qualitative adjustments. Remember I mentioned that the model calculates the, the quantitative reserve. You kind of know where the, the number should be, so you twist the dials with a qualitative to get where you need to be. Management ends up taking more of an adjustment on the qualitative for that reasonable and supportable forecast adjustments, which becomes much, much more challenging to justify and defend as those loss rates end up being updated over over time. And they are going to be much more sensitive with each new loss event that your institution ends up having as they, as they occur. So it's important to understand. That's my little dive into somewhat understanding Cecil, but fortunately, I've got a good team that can explain it to me. But it's important to understand what you have available to you for historical information, for the amount of losses your institutions experienced, and then the type of methodology you're going to pick. So in that case, does something like a discounted cash flow or something else make more sense than something in particular? So it's important to analyze that and you either use the consultative relationship with your provider or you have a better understanding internally. So make sure that you're, you're looking at that. And that's something that a validation or an audit should also pick up. Does it make sense? Right. And that gets into also the back to the documentation. And just, as you said, those models that have less quantitative data and they're being made up with qualitative factors, that's where the documentation gets trickier. Yeah, I think what ends up happening is you're trying to defend, and I think what you'd end up doing is it's like when you when you when you cheat in your taxes, you try to drown them in receipts. If you got a situation where you're trying to defend qualitative assumptions that might be a little out there, you try to just over describe types of things. And when it comes down to the to the qualitative and the assumptions that go into the model, that's why. And, and you know this, Jordan, as, as someone who looks and, and does audits and validations of these models. You have to be able to defend and support them. You can't just say, well, the model gives me this and I know it needs to be that. 
So I'm just going to adjust it to get there. You have to be able to look at it and say, well, I'm, I'm applying these qualitative factors with these weightings, and I've run the, the proper sensitivity analysis to come up with something that I feel most accurately reflects what makes sense for our bank or credit union. And that's what ends up getting put in the model documentation. That's the best way to handle that. The documentation is something that doesn't need to be 500 pages long with a lot of in-depth analysis and description about stuff that, that doesn't really matter. What really needs, it needs to be more of a blueprint for how Cecil came to be at your organization. So, you know, why'd you pick the model? Why did you go with the methodology that you did? Why is the model segmented the way it is? How did you come up with the macroeconomic scenarios and the qualitative adjustments to that? And and that's going to continue to evolve and change over time as things change with the CECL requirements, with your organization, with the environment, with all these types of things that are going to, to be impacted, that's going to impact your documentation. Right. And from my perspective, one of the biggest shortfalls in this documentation or your CECL narrative, as you may call it, is they usually include a lot of really great information and it includes the management's thought process on on everything that you've talked about, discussed to get to where you are in your model. But a lot of times it's missing the conclusion. It's missing like really tying back those factors to mm-hmm. to the quantitative data. So from my perspective, it's not always, as Mark said, the more the better is not true. It's effective documentation that really ties your ultimate conclusion to good data and to your end results and how you got there. So, and as he said, it's a living document that's going to evolve over time and um, it's not going to be perfect on day one, obviously. It's <laughs> never going to be perfect. So don't, <laughs> no, it's don't never. strive for Hemingway. It's not going to be. So it's going to be more Judy Bloom. <laughs> no disrespect to Judy Bloom, but it needs to be basic, easy to read, easy to understand. It doesn't need to be, you're not going to get credit for a lengthy document. That doesn't make sense. Well, thank you so much, Mark. It was great chatting with you today. And I think we covered a lot. Um, it's been a long road for Cecil. And I know our clients have worked hard to get to where they are today. But uh, the Cecil journey is not quite over. Uh, no, I think w- what happened is the Cecil train made it to the first stop. So the implementation's in place. But the next phase of the journey is continued development and enhancement of the model. So it's a different part to Cecil. It's going to continue to evolve. It's going to continue to grow. We need to continue to maintain this model. It's ultimately going to become something like your interest rate risk models and those other models we've worked with for a long time. But right now, there's still care and feeding that needs to be done. It's not over, but hopefully a lot of the hard part is. But now's the time to make sure you've got the right model, the right methodology, the right qualitative adjustments in place Hopefully uh, the session today with with Jordan and and me was, was helpful. But thanks to Jordan and BNN for, for inviting me to participate today. Thank you, Mark. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. Stay tuned for more articles, podcasts, and other resources on Cecil. Thank you for listening to Issues of Interest from Baker Newman Noise. The BNN Banking Team thrives on solving complex business challenges and helping institutions meet their goals. 
You can find more of our industry content and subscribe to our newsletter at bnncpa.com. If you'd like to connect with a member of our team, email info at bnncpa.com. Bye now. This podcast is brought to you by Baker Newman Noise. The information contained in this episode is based on data available as of the date of its release. BNN is under no obligation to update this information as changes occur. BNN podcasts, events, and publications are intended to provide general information to our clients and friends. It does not constitute accounting, tax, or legal advice, nor is it intended to convey a thorough treatment of the subject matter. The information in this podcast may or may not apply to your individual situation. Consult a professional for help applying these concepts to your personal circumstances. Please contact Baker Newman Noise for additional assistance at info at More information can be found online at bnncpa.com.